Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to Sexology Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this show. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're going to talk about everything you need to know about female orgasm. But before we dive into this topic, I want to remind you that this is the last week I'm offering the reduced fee for my sex therapy treatment in my offices. I have two offices now, one in Torrance and one in Hermosa Beach. And also I work with my clients online as well. So if you want to make an appointment, please give me a call at 310-600-9912. My reduced fee spots are almost filled. So if you want to look into sex therapy with me, this would be a good time to do so. So about our topic is that I'm always surprised with how many emails I get from my listeners and questions I get from my clients about related to women's orgasm. People want to know, is it possible if you haven't got orgasm, haven't you experienced orgasm for years to start having it now and what they can do to reach orgasm faster or people sometimes they want to know about different kind of orgasm. So if you have any of those questions, this is a good episode to listen to. I am super excited to be joined by Dr. Lori Mintz. Dr. Mintz is the author of two popular and highly acclaimed books, both written with the aim of empowering women's sexuality, Becoming Clitorate, Why Orgasm Equality Matters, and How to Get It, and A Tired Women's Guide to Passionate Sex. I personally recently read Becoming Clitorate, and I loved it. 
and I highly recommend you to check it out. Here's my conversation with Dr. Lori Mintz. Welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. As I mentioned during the introduction, I am so excited to have Dr. Lori Mintz to join us today to talk about women's orgasm. Dr. Lori, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me on the show. I am so excited. I was just sharing with our uh, listeners that I read your book and it's just full of great information. So I cannot wait to dive into this uh, topic further with you. Well, wonderful. I can't wait either. So one of the things I know you focus in the book mostly on women's orgasm, and I'm kind of surprised with the questions sometimes I get because some of my clients, some of my friends, sometimes they ask me, what does an orgasm feel like? They think they might experience it. They're not sure it was orgasm because it wasn't matching what they had, like what, what, uh, about what they see in the medias and pornography or they hear about it. So how do we know whether we reached orgasm or not? That is such a great question. And it's a question I get a lot from students in my class as well. And, you know, really simply, you know, a lot of people will tell you, if you don't know if you've had an orgasm or not, you probably haven't. But that's, you know, that's, while that's true, that's not the most helpful answer. So what I, how I like to explain orgasm is that every orgasm feels different. Some do feel very strong and powerful and others seem, feel very like, just like, oh, hello, um, very small, but Basically, most people describe orgasm, and it's interesting because if women and men write descriptions of their orgasms, you can't actually tell the difference, that it's a great building up of tension and then a great release of that tension with its very pleasurable and the feeling of muscle contractions sort of throughout the genital region and even throughout your body. Right. And one thing that I, I've noticed, at least about myself, that like since I've become more interested in sex education, I hear about all this ki- different kinds of sexual orgasm and how some of them are better than the others. And I even now start questioning, am I experiencing the best one or not? So tell us a little <laughs> bit about the different types of orgasm and about their differences potentially. Yes, and I'm so glad you said that about how even you as a sex educator can start to doubt yourself when there's all this hype out there about getting the best orgasm and the most ideal type of orgasm. And we hear about clitoral orgasms and blended orgasms and vaginal orgasms and, you know, all that. And what I talk about in the book, Becoming Clitorate, is that... While there is some evidence from scientists, there's like of different kinds of orgasms. And then there's also some scientists who say, no, that evidence isn't legitimate. That I actually really think that that question itself of what types of female orgasms and which is better sort of sets up this false dichotomy for women that were, there's a right way to orgasm. And that one way is better than the other. And we don't hear people talking about men's orgasms by the source of the stimulation. We don't hear about intercourse orgasms or oral sex orgasms. Or It's only when it comes to women's orgasms that we want to characterize clitoral, vaginal, 
um, and then sort of declare one better than the other. So basically what I really like to tell people is that every woman's body is different. The genital nerves are actually have a different way of being across all women's genitals. And so every woman has her own unique way of reaching orgasm. And however you reach orgasm, most reliably is the right way. An orgasm is an orgasm is an orgasm. Yet that said, a, the, a big part of the book, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is that about 95% of women require some form of external clitoral stimulation to reach orgasm. And I, I, it was so validating to hear that because I know in like, I had some dynamic psychodynamic background. And I heard like, you know, how Freud was thinking like clitoral orgasm is immature and how things shifted. And I really liked when you were talking about even during uh, vaginal orgasm, most of it, it's because sometimes the clitoris getting uh, getting aroused and kind of stimulated is the right word for that. Right, exactly. That there's, you know, when you talk about the different kind of orgasms, there's like a camp that says yes, there's clitoral and vaginal. There's a camp that says all orgasms are clitoral because the clitoris is internal and external. And then there's another camp that says our entire sexual anatomy. Is, shouldn't be divided into this, that. It's all is one functional unit. And in fact, those people say, and we should call the whole unit a clitoris because the clitoris is the biggest, most, you know, largest in size and most essential organ for women's orgasms. But you're right, Freud really did a number on women's sexuality by saying when women get, young girls reach adolescence or get older, they should transfer the sensitivity of their clitoris to their vagina, that's like ridiculous. It's like saying, well, once you get older, you should start eating with your nose instead of your mouth. <laughs> that's funny. And I, the other point that I really like in your book, you were talking about exactly what you mentioned, that how women's different types of orgasms, it seems like there is this hierarchy, but we don't have that conversation about different kinds of orgasm, types of orgasms for men. Why do you think we have that standard for women, but not men? Well, I think it goes down. It goes down. There's there's a little pun for you. Um, <laughs> it, it comes down, um, and continuing the pun, I think it comes down to just how focused we are on sex's reproduction and how we're so focused on men's sexuality. So to give you a few examples, and you know, if you read the book, you you read the chapter about my linguistic analysis. You know, we equate the words sex and intercourse as if intercourse is the main act. We relegate everything before to foreplay. We call our entire genital anatomy the vagina, which is really the, the canal where babies come out and penises go in. We're naming our genitals by a part that's sexually more useful to men than it is to women's orgasms. And, you know, some people have said, well, it's because that's related to procreation. But then a lot of other people have said that doesn't really explain the force with which women's orgasms and women's most reliable root of orgasm has been negated in our culture. And that we, we have this male 
um, this model that favors male orgasms, you know, foreplay just to get her ready for intercourse, intercourse, she, he orgasms, she might, might once in a while or a lot of times fake it, man ejaculates sex over and it's it's just not an equal valuing of the t- of women and men's ways of reaching orgasm. Right, and I, I and I know you in your talk you had in the book you had a very interesting analogies about someone bringing water and how it's for women now it's acceptable for them to kind of not expect orgasm each time, but for men it's something that's expected, and you were kind of connecting it to whether women experience uh, orgasm from a hookup culture, from the hookup or not. Right. And that's that water metaphor is actually, I love that it's from Peggy Ornstein. She was talking to a group of young girls, high school girls, who a lot of times are giving oral sex but getting nothing in return. And she said to them, well, how would you feel like every time you were with your you know, boyfriend and he said, fetch me a glass of water but never got you one in return? It's not an equitable giving and receiving. And the hookup sex is where the orgasm gap is the biggest. This was, this statistic is stunning to me. Um, and it's consistent year after year with data I collect with my own students. In first-time hookup sex, 55% of the men versus 4% of the women say they orgasm during first-time hookup sex. Yeah, that was so interesting. And also, I'm kind of shocked about how many women, they don't experience orgasm. And they've been in like, at least I can talk about my clients, that they've been in relationship with partners for years and years. So what are some common factors that you see that might contribute to one's not experiencing orgasm? Well, that is such a good question. And I truly believe that every woman can orgasm if given the right set of two and attitudes. And the first is simply knowledge of one's own anatomy and you know what is what makes up your genital anatomy, taking a look down there, you know, getting to know yourself. And the other is knowledge, knowing that the vast majority, 95% of women need clitoral stimulation to orgasm. And then it's really a matter of, I, I think it's sort of a, at the risk of oversimplifying it, it's a four-step process that I lay out in the book. The first is finding out how you orgasm through taking matters into your own hands, pleasuring yourself. Then the second step is to instill within yourself the attitudes that, that you deserve orgasm, that your orgasm is as equally as important as your partner's orgasm. It's also focusing on mindfulness, learning to immerse in the sensations of the moment, turning off your brain and not sort of, am I doing it right? And just being able to relax. And then being able to communicate with your partner about what you like. And finally, that whole cultural script of, you know, foreplay, intercourse, his ejaculation game over is, Um, sort of the climax of the book where I present alternative ways to have sex where the female orgasm is just as central as the male orgasm. And it can happen before intercourse. It can happen after intercourse. It can happen during intercourse simply because a person is maybe actually stimulating their own clitoris with a hand or a vibrator or, you know, there, we can turn the tables and have an, a time where just the woman orgasms, only she comes. 
So it takes a lot of different variables, but it's it's a very, very reachable goal. And I like how you were ta- you're talking about different versions, different variables, and also different cu- times that women can reach orgasm. Because I know sometimes some women, if they're not reaching orgasm through like the uh, code and code expected way, like through intercourse, they kind of consider the other ways, like maybe with simulation with their like their G spot or afterward, they feel like they're less than and there's something wrong with them and they feel shameful about it. Yes. And that is just, you know, it's culturally induced shame that women, there is a right way, like that hierarchy that the you know, the women who orgasm from thrusting alone, which is only about four or five percent, are best, followed by women who can orgasm during intercourse if they touch themselves, followed by women who just need plain clitoral stimulation without a penis in their vagina. And, and you know, I, I say that's just baloney, um, although I use a stronger word in the book. Um <laughs> And, you know, it's just, this is what culture has falsely taught us. And it's, there is no scientific evidence or proof of this. And it's really time that we kind of become knowledgeable and empowered about our own bodies. And, and, you know, I I quote something in the book that I love, and it's really the premise of the whole book. And it's a quote by someone who was talking about racial inequities in our healthcare system, who said there can be no quality without equality. And I believe that's true of sex. You can't have quality sex without true sexual equality, which without an equal valuing of both partners' most reliable routes to orgasm. I believe that's very true. And I think big part of it also comes from us allowing ourselves to kind of feel entitled that I cannot get pleasure, I can experience orgasm, because I know that sometimes women say, oh, sometimes I just only need to experience, enjoy the journey, which is absolutely, I understand that. But if, you, if you're if you not coming from the play, place of acceptance and you're kind of settling, I think then that's, that can be an issue. Yes, I, you know, I totally agree. I mean, I think in this is the great irony of this is that if you're really focused on the goal of orgasm, I have to orgasm, I have to orgasm, you're not going to orgasm. But it once you let yourself just be mindful and flow into it, you will. So at the same time that I'm trying to instill the attitude to orgasm, and the entitlement, you know, it can't be a goal to strive for. Yet at the same time, I think when people say, oh, I'm happy without an orgasm, I really have to question, is that true or have you just given up or have you sort of bought into that stereotype in our culture that, oh, if it's good for him, it's good for me type deal. Right. And I feel at least I know for many of my friends, I can talk about myself that like the more you experience orgasm, your desire gonna get affected as well. So if you're not experiencing orgasm, then they might not, you might not be as willing to engage in sexual behaviors. Exactly. If it's no fun, why do you want to keep doing it? (laughs) (laughs) And if it's really fun, then you're going to want to do that again. Right. Absolutely. Positively correct. You know, and women's desire and orgasm and satisfaction, they're all very connected to one another. 
And I know in your book, you talk about pleasure gap between men and women. And I know we covered some of the factors that contribute to that. But does anything else come to your mind? Yes. Well, so the biggest, I, you know, and I'm talking about the pleasure gap, just as a little caveat, I'm talking about the pleasure gap between and men, not because I'm trying to leave out lesbians, but because there isn't a pleasure gap there. Um, lesbian sex is orgasmic. So the pleasure gap between women and men, I say in the book that what we've just talked about, the number one reason for the pleasure gap is this lie that you're supposed to orgasm during intercourse. But there's so many other reasons. And there's slut shaming, you know, sort of the cultural double standard. Well, it's sort of hard to have fun if you think you're, you know, bad or a slut for having sex. There's the fact that we're never taught anything about sexual communication in our culture. We're instilled with this attitude of, you know, good girls don't. And if it's good for him, it's good for me. And, you know, our sex education system, we are, we're told that sex is dangerous. You could get pregnant in an STI. It's all about danger and um, not about pleasure. We never utter the word clitoris or pleasure in sex education. And in fact, only 23 states mandate that sex education be, I'm sorry, less than 15, 13 states mandate that sex education be medically accurate. You should hear the lies that people are told in sex ed. They're terrifying. So it's very hard to overcome all that sex negative upbringing and those values that we give um, instill in young people. It's so sad to me. Yeah. And every single time that I hear about that, I, only few states require sex education to be medically accurate. It's just every time I get startled. It's like saying that, oh, in biology, only 10 states require biology to base on science. So I don't know what other way you can teach these things based on like scientific medical facts. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and I've just actually written a recent blog about this, and I really dug deep into it. And it's really value based education. Like, you can tell people, you know, I had a young woman, this was so striking to me. Her sex ed teacher told her that if she had intercourse before marriage, her vagina would mold to the shape of that man's penis. And her future husband would never fit inside comfortably. Oh, my God. That's so insane. Isn't that insane? Um, another student told me she was told that if she had sex and got pregnant before marriage, that she would have an ectopic pregnancy and she and the baby would probably die. So wow. it's this. Yeah. I mean, they are just like teachers are allowed in many states, the majority of states, to tell students lies and scare them in order to try to convince them not to have sex before marriage. And what's insane to me is like there's the evidence is that it doesn't work. Instead, the, you know, the sex drive is a pretty powerful thing. So young people are having sex, but they're just not using birth control. It's when you give people accurate, scientific medical information about both the pleasures of sex and to how to make it safe, then you have better outcomes. In the Netherlands, they do that. They do it from a young age. They even show pornography in their classes in high school and then talk to the students about the difference 
between porn sex and real sex. And they have the best, they have great sexual outcomes there and happy, satisfying sex and a lower pregnancy and STI rate than we do, much lower. Right. And I feel that's something we don't do well here. I mean, I come from, I'm Iranian and I grew up in Iran, so I definitely have experience with conservative uh, society. My family were slightly more open-minded and much more open-minded than general population, but I, I work with many Iranian clients in my private practice. And as you mentioned, like shame-based sex education didn't necessarily prevent people from having sexual encounter. It's just created this negative, uh, shameful relationship that they have with their own sexuality. And it's And I always talk about how signing a marriage certificate doesn't change change your belief about sexuality. So now they're married and they're coming in and they have all this kind of issues because of the negative beliefs that it was kind of put into their head early on. Exactly. And it's so sad. And your clients are so lucky that they have you, you know, to help them sort of turn those attitudes around and embrace sexuality as important and, you know, fun. But you're right. It's So many people are taught like this is a terrible thing until you get married. And it's like the flip, the switch doesn't just flip. And all of a sudden, you know how to do this and you feel comfortable in your body. We've incorporated years and years of sex negativity. And it's very, it's hard to overcome. But it's, as you know, it's, it's absolutely possible with accurate education and encouragement and um, time and gentle with yourself. Right. Absolutely. I think that's something that can be changed, but it requires commitment. So one of the questions I get often, I see like kind of a contradictory literature on that is on that. Is there any evolutionary function for orgasm? What do you think about that? Oh, I love that question. (laughs) And you were talking about, we know the function of male orgasm. It's, you know, procreation and There are so many theories of female orgasm and there's, they can basically be divided into two, which is that it does somehow help with procreation that, you know, there's this one theory that the contractions that you have during orgasm will suck the ejaculate up and you'll be more likely to get pregnant. Then there's a whole bunch of theories about bonding. It makes you love your partner more and want to be with your partner. Well, there's this great book by a woman named Elizabeth Lloyd, and she took all the existing evolutionary theories and she debunked them and said, it's just a fantastic um, bonus of fetal development, kind of like male nipples. Now that's just a theory in and of itself. So all these theories are still competing But recently, a new theory came out that's getting a lot of interesting publicity. I find it really fascinating. In a nutshell, basically, in in many mammals, when the orgasm occurs, that's when ovulation occurs. So it helps you get pregnant. And what these theorists kind of speculate is that before we used to be like that, we used to be orgasm triggered ovulators. But when we started living in groups and having more and more sexual encounters, that became, you know, not very useful. And so we started ovulating once a month. 
and that the clitoris, which is, again, the source of most female orgasms, used to be located in the vagina to help women orgasm and then ovulate, migrated outside of the vagina. And that's a really interesting brand new theory. And finally, one of the theories I love most of all is a feminist anthropological theory that basically says what is most useful evolutionary-wise is women's inability to orgasm during intercourse because if a, a woman can find a male partner that is sensitive to and attentive to her way of reaching an orgasm and takes the time to help her experience orgasm outside of the way he does, that person is going to be a good mate. So if he's attentive to your clitoral-based orgasm inside the bedroom, he'll be a good mate outside of the bedroom. <laughs> I love that. I haven't heard about this one. I'm going to go with this one. <laughs> I, think on. I, go, I go with that one too. I love that theory. <laughs> Which I can see there are some truth to that. So I have, the last question I have is about some tips. I know the book was full of great tips and I definitely want people to look into that. But what are some of the techniques that you recommend for women who have difficulty reaching orgasm? What are some of the things they can try? Okay, thank you for asking that. I think that's so important to kind of have a takeaway. You know, in the book, we'll give much more details. But one thing I say in the book, and I say, and I put this in bold, is that the most essential step to orgasming with a partner is to get the same type of stimulation you get when you pleasure yourself. So, so many women, they know how to reach orgasm on their own. It takes about two to four minutes, and it's mostly external clitoral stimulation, um, maybe a little penetration added here and there, but the vast majority of women masturbate solely by external stimulation. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with penetration um, alone or with a partner, but um, so I'm not trying to turn the tables. So figure out what you need alone and then get that same kind of stimulation when you're with a partner. Because one study found that 78% of women's orgasm problems when intercourse was in the equation was not getting enough or the right kind of clitoral stimulation. So I talk about however you reach orgasm on your own is, the, is get that same kind of stimulation when with a partner. So for example, and I'll even give a personal example here, for I've always pleasured myself laying on my tummy. Now most women do it on their back, so I'm unusual in that way, but I don't know, I started doing that as a little girl and that's still what I do. So the best way then, for, so how do I transfer that to partner sex? The best position for me is going to be, if I'm going to include intercourse in the equation, it's going to be, I guess what you might call doggy style sex, right? Or rear entry right. sex or sex where I'm on my stomach, where I can reach my own hands down and touch myself the way I do when I'm alone while my partner is thrusting, you know? So that's a, you know, a transfer step. Some women reach orgasm from just rubbing on pillows, you know, they learn that as a little girl and they do it. Well, rub on those pillows while you're having intercourse. The most essential step is to get that same type of stimulation. Now, for a lot of women, this means who've been faking for years, 
It means having a conversation, and I include a lot of conversational tips in the book. There's a whole chapter on communication, but I basically say that the tips to the tip to orgasm is the two C's the, for most people: the clitoris and communication. That is so true, and I love when you talk about transferring what works for you instead of kind of trying to kind of think these things about two different ways. So my masturbation method is supposed to be different than my couple or whatever arrangement people have, like sexual interaction. So that's very important to keep that in mind. And also, I love the adding the communication part because I feel that's the part that's missing for many people. And I think like learning how to talk about what gives you pleasure is really important. Very, very important. And to have that talk, a lot of times I call them kitchen table sex talks, to sit down with your partner outside of the sex you know, sexual encounter and say, you know, I really love you. I really love having sex with you. And there's some things I'd like to try differently, you know, and talking that through and then learning to communicate during sex, talking about after what went well, what didn't. We're taught like, oh, don't talk about it. But, you know, sex goes much, much better like anything else in a relationship if you learn to talk about it. Dr. Lore, I can talk about, I mean, I loved your book. I could talk about it for hours, but I know that we are toward the end of our time. So if our listeners want to reach out to you to check out all this wonderful resources or work with you, what would be the best way of contacting you? Okay. So my website has everything about me. Um, it's www.drlauriemintz.com. And there's a link to Coming Clitorit, um, the book we just talked about in another book I have, A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex. It has a link to my private practice, to my teaching, to my research, and it also has links to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So that's sort of the center of information. But if someone's just interested in buying the book, they can go straight to Amazon and I'm very excited to say that on Tuesday um, next week, September 26th, Becoming Clitter will be released as an audiobook. Oh, awesome. That's great. And also, I make sure I leave the information show notes both to Amazon and your private practice website. And thank you so much for your time. This was, I feel, it was a very helpful, full of great content episode. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for all you do to enhance people's pleasure and for this wonderful podcast and having me on the show. I think it's wonderful to have you on and thank you for all the kind words. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Lori Mintz. I love her sense of humor and also all the great content that she provided. One thing that really stayed with me and stuck with me, it was that how she was talking about that, how she is confident that every woman can orgasm if they have the right information and skills. So I hope that you kind of got some ideas on what to do. And also please check out her book if you want more tips on reaching orgasm and having a better communication tool with your partner. At the end, I also wanted to ask you if you enjoy listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me if you share it with one of your friends or someone else that might be interested. I'll talk to you next week. 
Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.